the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on a summer-like Tuesday afternoon, May 10th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. Lagunitas Brewing plans to reopen its Chicago tap room later this year. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, inflation remains top of mind. While readings on small business and the supply of homes for sale are out today, we're joined by Andrew Bush, former chief markets intelligence officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and economist at andrewbush.com based in Chicago. Andy, thanks for joining us today. By this time, we can quote uh, the Federal Reserve guidance on inflation uh, pretty much in our sleep uh, when it comes to the uh, number and the uh, height of uh, federal funds rate hikes over the course of 2022. But uh, how much of this is gas prices and food inflation driven by the war in Ukraine? And how much of this would be uh, affected and how much of it would kind of disappear if that conflict were to wind down tomorrow? Yeah, well, it'd take a lot longer than that to rebalance a lot of the energy markets and certainly the grain markets where um, countries like Egypt and Turkey get a lot of corn and wheat from uh, the Ukraine. So even if they stopped you know, fighting tomorrow, it would take months before this clears out. And certainly it will take months for the supply chain to stabilize as well. Um, As far as inflation goes, uh, we're going to continue to see that for some time. Um, These are global energy markets, obviously, so um, it's important to keep track of what's going on. Even though the price of of, um, oil overall has come down, we haven't seen gasoline prices or diesel prices come down because refineries just can't keep up right now. So those prices remain very elevated. Anybody who's buying any kind of consumer product that gets shipped on a truck, and that's about everything – uh, is going to feel the pinch on higher prices because of that diesel price. What makes America's inflation different than the inflation that other countries and other central banks are grappling with? Well, ours is different because we have sent so much money out to consumers over the last two years. These are all the CARES Act and the uh, American Recovery Plan um, money uh, that was, it, it did its job. It generated a lot of economic growth. It helped people uh, who were in need, helped people who lost their jobs. But it also created a lot of money for people to spend where it created bottlenecks. Uh, and when you have supply chain disruptions on top of it, like the war in the Ukraine or China, you know, shutting down ports because of COVID, then you've got a problem with inflation as well. So it's it's unique in that sense because we sent so much money out to uh, all the citizens. Uh, and so it's going to take a while for that to wear off. And a lot of these uh, things that are hitting the economy are also uh, hitting the uh, small business owner, the NFIB, uh, the small business expectations for better conditions six months down the, row, uh, down the road at a 48-year low. And they're reporting the same things we've been talking about, inflation, supply chain issues, and they can't find people to fill those jobs. Uh, what, what is the solution there? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, solutions that are out there. None of them work perfectly because every person who you're trying to attract, there are different age groups for that. 20, 30, 40 year olds all have different perspectives. But I think the key thing is flexibility. So can you shift some workers to a four day work week? That seems to have worked really well for a lot of people. Can they work from home? That's another aspect. Um, you know, are you going to pay them more? Can you pay, you know, your key people? uh, First of all, before you hire anybody, can you 
keep you know pay your key people in the office already can you pay to hold on to them that's really important too so there's a lot of different ways of approaching this it's it's not a one size fits all but you got to have to be flexible in the way that you approach the problem andrew bush former chief markets intelligence officer at the commodity futures trading commission and economist at andrewbush.com based in chicago thanks for joining us coming up a chicago tap room reopening following a pandemic hiatus the only program dedicated to currency events. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. California-based beer maker Lagunitas Brewing is reviving at Chicago Tap Room. Let's get the details from Ali Marotti, restaurants and retail reporter at Crane Chicago Business. Ali, thanks for joining us today. By the time this tap room reopens, it will have been closed for well over two years. And uh, Lagunitas is late to the game in reopening its uh, brewery tap room. But uh, as you report, they did that for a very good reason. Yes, they did. So they have this tap room um, in the Douglas Park neighborhood, and it's in the same facility as their bottling operation. And from that facility, they supply everybody, all the customers, all the bars, all the restaurants, basically east of the Mississippi. So by reducing the people that were coming into the tap room, what they were trying to do was protect the workers in that bottling facility to make sure that operation could keep going. You know, it's a gamble. Um, It took a hit to their bottom line, but uh, Lagunitas tells me that it worked. They did not suffer from out-of-stock issues like a lot of other breweries did throughout the pandemic. Um, And so, you know, I think they're getting pretty excited to reopen finally here at the end of the year. And for a lot of uh, craft brewers, even though, uh, you know, Lagunitas is kind of on the larger end of craft brewing, a lot of the craft brewers in Chicago that may not have these uh, robust distribution networks and stores across multiple states, they rely on those tap rooms uh, basically to stay in business. They do. Yeah, they use them a lot to kind of win new customers. The craft beer drinker likes to experiment and try different things, and they do that very often in the tap room. Um, like you said, Lagunitas, they, uh, Heineken owns part of them, so they're not technically considered craft brewing, but they still were up against a lot of the same issues that craft breweries faced throughout the course of the pandemic, which mainly, in a nutshell, was just the change in consumer behavior, right? You weren't going to bars and restaurants, and most breweries do sell most of their beer at bars and restaurants. So when you lose that, you have to rely solely on the beer that's being bought at the grocery stores, at the convenience stores. And so that's one of the reasons why Lagunitas decided to keep their tap room closed for so long. You know, they needed to make sure they could supply all their grocery store and retail partners. It's interesting to note that uh, before the pandemic, 60% of Lagunitas sales occurred in bars and restaurants and other retail locations, 40% at grocery stores. That's changed, and now bars and restaurants are just 20% of Lagunitas sales. Is this a way, potentially, of uh, bringing that ratio back to uh, a 2019 level? They do say that it's recovering. You know, they they think that... uh, a little bit slower than they thought, you know, that in bar and restaurant business, but they do think that it will help. They've also launched this new product, which is interesting. It's a hard tea. It's sort of their answer to the hard seltzer craze. It's one of their main uh, product launches this year. That's another change we saw in breweries and other packaged food companies, basically reducing the number of products they were going to put on the market. So Lagunitas thinks that this is really going to help them get back to those 2019 levels. Ali Marotti, restaurants and retail reporter, Crane Chicago Business. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up next, the first hotel on Navy Pier celebrating its one-year anniversary. 
loaning useful information each weekday. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Sable at Navy Pier, the first hotel at the mega popular tourist site, is now in its second year of operation. Let's check in with Bob Habib, the CEO of Maverick Hotels and Restaurants in Chicago, which owns Sable. Bob, thanks for joining us this afternoon. When you opened a year ago, I'm sure you had some predictions, some projections as to how that first year would go as America emerged from the hardest portion of the pandemic. Uh, did the reality uh, line up with your predictions? We actually uh, came out of the gates better than we expected to. Uh, uh, with the, the pandemic starting to, to wane, you might remember during the, during the spring, uh, the check sitting in the mailbox for the, for the stimulus package and the location on Navy Pier, we actually had a very strong summer. And then as we got into fall, uh, the, the training became more challenging. And then uh, when it came to uh, the amount of business you had in the past year, this is just uh, the the average tourist. This is without the major convention business. Um, how do things look with more conventions coming on the books at McCormick Place? The first quarter was challenging. Chicago was actually the worst market in the country uh, for hotel. And the future, though, looks much, much better. Uh, we're seeing our advanced booking window has grown from 23 or four days through much of the pandemic to almost 80 days for the summer, which tells us that consumers expect uh, to be out traveling again, and they expect there to be competition for hotel rooms. And does this track the uh, general growth uh, in the Chicago hotel market? It does. And, and I would say seasonally, we still have uh, concerns about what happens when we come back out of the traditional leisure season later in the fall and into next winter. But uh, all expectations are that it will be a very strong summer. And then what about just the uh, return of crowds to Navy Pier? I mean, not everybody who walks into the hotel is a guest. I mean, some people check out the restaurants and the bars. Uh, just, you know, the average walk up business. What's that been like? You know, the pier saw a significant decrease in its visitors through the pandemic just because of the of the public assembly uh, restrictions. But lately, it's become uh, like the old days again. We see a lot of foot traffic on the pier, and uh, we have uh, uh, fireworks returning, and it's 80 degrees out today, so we expect that we're going to see a return to some normalcy on Navy Pier. I was going to say, on a day like today where it's uh, already 80 degrees, uh, a bright blue sky and bright blue waters on Lake Michigan, it's probably hard not to feel optimistic. Yeah, and I actually think that we'll see a stronger uh, summer visitation than years past because people have a lot of pent-up desire to get out and be be on the lakefront, and I think we're going to expect to see a very busy summer. Bob Habib, CEO of Maverick Hotels and Restaurants based in Chicago, the owner of Sable at Navy Pier. Still ahead in Travel Tuesday, inflation is creating extra challenges for summer travelers. This is Chicago's all-news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM.
The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. President Biden lays out a plan to help Americans battle crippling inflation. A special report coming up from CBS News. Travel Tuesday, rapidly rising prices, making it tough on families, planning summer getaways. Longtime athletic footwear retailer Foot Locker facing major challenges in a changing marketplace. WBBM Business, the markets are mixed, but uh, off their bottoms for the day. The Dow is down just 83 points now. The NASDAQ is up 111, and the S&P 500 is up 7. AccuWeather says a blend of sun and clouds today, breezy, a high of 88, cooler along the lakefront, 81 degrees right now in Chicago at 1231. CBS News special report. Gas prices hit a new record high. AAA says the new national average for a gallon of regular is 437. In New York, drivers are not happy. If you don't have the extra money to pay for it, it could be a real hardship. President Biden says part of the problem is our reliance on foreign energy. We saw in March that 60% of inflation that month was due to price increases at the pump for gasoline. Putin's war has raised food prices as well. Because Ukraine and Russia, two of the world's major breadbaskets for wheat and corn, are essentially completely stalled. But prices aren't likely to change much heading into summer. Oil analyst Tom Closa says they could fall a bit before rising again. I don't think this is necessarily the top of the market. I think maybe that comes in July and August. Bay Area drivers are still paying the most nationwide now at 6.04. CBS News Special Report. I'm Monica Ricks. It's 12.32. Markets are mixed today. We're joined by Chuck Carlson, the CEO of Horizon Investment Services and publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast newsletter based in Hammond. Chuck, thanks for joining us today. We talked yesterday uh, in the afternoon and uh, talked about how the uh, we were the Dow industrials were flirting with uh, another low in the Dow Theory and and then the, the Dow Industrials managed to uh, clear that uh, low rather comfortably yesterday afternoon. So we set a new record yesterday or new low yesterday. So how does the Dow theory reset? Basically, when you had both the Dow Jones Industrial Average, as you said, going to a new significant low yesterday, and it was also followed by the Dow Jones Transportation Average going to a, a new closing low yesterday, that basically reconfirms the bearish market trend that the Dow Theory had established February 22nd. So it, it reconfirmed that we are definitely in a bear market. And, uh, you know, when you're in a bear market, you get kind of days like we're seeing today where, you know, I think some buyers thought that uh, the market had capitulated enough yesterday to do buying at the beginning of the day. And then that uh, pretty quickly uh, dissolved. Uh, and you get kind of these uneven markets like we're seeing today. And that's that's probably going to be the status quo going forward where you have this type of volatility with the, the overall market indices kind of probing lower. Now, we should, uh, just as a, as a matter of perspective, the Dow Industrials, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ, uh, even despite this year's volatility, is the, the indices are all substantially higher than their absolute lows that were set in March of 2020. So this is just giving back uh, what has been a remarkable run for the past two years. Well, it has, but you know, another way you can look at that, though, too, is yes, it's, it has given back, you know, pretty much back to, to where we were about a year ago. So, 
you know, we, we have given back pretty significantly when you look at those those indices. Now, you know, obviously the $64,000 question is, you know, have we given back enough and are we closer to that, that low? I think, you know, yesterday, while I, I will not say that that was the type of capitulation that you usually associate with significant market bottoms, it, it was it was pretty substantial. I, and so there has been plenty of damage done when you look kind of underneath the index returns and see, you know, a lot of stocks down, you know, 30, 40, 50, in some cases, some of the, the Hatsi Tatsi tech stocks down 60, 70, 80 percent. There's been a substantial amount of damage, but but I, I it just doesn't feel to me that there's been enough damage done across the board to really say that the, the market is, is ready to lay in a bottom here. It's I mean, we, we can all recite now the various reasons why we're seeing this level of volatility in the markets. It's interest rates, it's inflation, it's war in Ukraine, it's supply chain issues, it's oil prices, it's China. We know all of them. Um, but looking back, you know, where, where do we go from here, basically? I mean, you said we're not near the bottom quite yet. Uh, all of these uh, external factors are going to be there. Uh, so what happens uh, to the markets going forward, given that all of these issues are here and show no sign of abating? Well, what, what typically happens is that you start to see the market doing better, despite the fact that when you look out the window, things are still pretty bad. And, and it's usually driven by, uh, you know, an, a rebound in, in corporate profits. Here, in this instance, though, the, the cadence of the rebound is going to be probably a little distorted and and the major distortion factor factor is inflation you know if i've been in the markets for 40 years and this is really the first time in that 40 year period where inflation really factors into the the bearish calculus every every other bear market during that time has been basically you know a pretty common cycle where you have earnings uh, you have a recession you have earnings declining uh, you eventually have comparisons earnings comparisons getting easier and the market rebounds here you've you've got this inflation and, and inflation just wreaks havoc on on earnings multiples and and so you know that's the wild card here that hasn't really existed for the last 30 years and that's what's making it so difficult for people to kind of factor in when will this thing bottom and and to me you know that is the wild card and the x factor in terms of where this where this market can bottom and that's inflation chuck carlson ceo of horizon investment services and publisher of the dow theory forecast newsletter based in hammond indiana coming up next in travel tuesday strategies for saving during summer getaways compounding your interest with an economy of words this is the wbba Noon Business Hour. It's Travel Tuesday, and the cost of gas is just one part of shaping up to be a rather expensive summer travel season. Let's get some help from Cindy Richards, who is the editor-in-chief of TravelingMom.com, based in Chicago. Cindy, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. When uh, pricing out plane tickets for the summer, even if you're doing it now, maybe you find yourself with some additional time off. Uh, if you peruse the websites of even the budget airline uh, air carriers, you're in for some stick shock. Oh, you really are. You know, I just was in Las Vegas last week, and I think the plane ticket cost something like $700. I mean, I, I, you know, you could always fly there for $99 each way, right? So when people are booking um, plane tickets for the summer, I really am advising people start shopping now and and watch the flights. You know, watch the prices. They're they're very unpredictable. I talked to a woman this morning who said that she was looking for a flight from Chicago 
to Phoenix, and the price had actually dropped slightly last week. So watch the flights, and if you see a little, um, you know, tick down in the price, jump on it and and book it. Um, and you know, I, I I know gas prices are ridiculously high, but I'm kind of still a believer in trying to drive, mostly because of having control over where you're going, and especially if you're traveling with kids and you're buying three or more plane tickets, it can get really expensive. You know, there's a we have a story on the site. Um, to know whether it's cheaper to drive or fly. You can find that on travelingmom.com and you can plug in your, you know, how far you're going and where you have to get a hotel and how many meals and all that kind of stuff to, to get a real sense of what it would actually cost you to drive someplace versus fly. Well, especially with airfares these days, and as you mentioned, uh, if, if you have uh, two or three or more children uh, for whom you have to purchase airline tickets, uh, all of a sudden that uh, road trip in the family truckster looks awfully competitive uh, compared to an airline flight across the country. Well, it really does. And, you know, but some people do have to fly or they're going so far and they only have a week vacation and it doesn't make sense to drive to California, in which case you really, really want to book a direct flight, even if it means you have to drive a little farther to get to an airport. Like, you know, if maybe you used to fly out of mid, uh, Milwaukee and connect somewhere. This time it might make sense to fly to O'Hare, mostly because you know, flights are unreliable. They're expensive and unreliable. So if your flight leaves late and you end up missing your connection and, you know, and then you've got all of that expense and and it can be a big problem. And also, I really, really recommend if you have to be somewhere, like you're going to a wedding, a destination wedding, um, bite a bullet and go in a day early. I, I met a woman at the airport last week who actually was missing um, her friend's wedding because her flight got canceled and she was crying and very upset, as anybody would be. And lastly, uh, look for less popular destinations. So national parks are busy. Disney World, of course, is very busy. Uh, but does, that doesn't mean you have to tr- plan your summer vacation around a trip to like Nutley, New Jersey. No, you don't. But you know what? Here in the Midwest, we're really lucky because there's two really terrific theme parks that are within driving distance of Chicago. I'm a big fan of both Dolly World in Tennessee and um, Holiday World in southern Indiana. They're both terrific um, theme parks for far less money. And the other thing is everywhere you go, no matter where you go, there's free things to do. We have a whole section on TravelingMom.com of free things to do in the 50 states. That's a really good way to extend your family vacation budget is to spend an afternoon or two doing something that doesn't cost you anything. And on the other hand, though, uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, the home of Dollywood, uh, that's a rather busy place as well, especially in the summer months. I mean, that's a, 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 a busy tourist destination for that part of the country. It's a very busy tourist destination, but what's nice about it is there's a lot of um, rental properties, so you can get a kitchen and you can save a lot of money on food by cooking in or even just having breakfast and lunch, you know, maybe packing sandwiches to take with you to Dollywood. And those theme parks, Dollywood and Holiday World, far less expensive admission price than uh, Disney World. Well, maybe this is just the, uh, the Midwest bias speaking, but there's always Door County. Go up there and go take, in a fish, go, go take in a fish boil. That's right, and, and take a nice long walk out in nature. That's always free. Cindy Richards, Editor-in-Chief, TravelingMom.com. Thanks for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Personal Finance Wednesday and still to come, an update on the competition to attract sneaker buyers. 
The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The athletic shoe business is booming with sales expected to hit the $120 billion a year mark in the next four years. Let's talk about the battle for customers with Jan Rogers Niffen, CEO, J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide, based in New York. Jan, thanks for joining us today. Way back when, in the 90s, if you went to the shopping mall, the place to get uh, high-end sneakers was Foot Locker, and there was an army of salesmen and saleswomen uh, dressed as referees, ready to uh, uh, take care of whatever sneaker needs you had. Uh, is that still the state of play in the marketplace, or how has the online space uh, disrupted the brick-and-mortar sneaker business? Well, it's disrupted a lot. I mean, we already know that Nike's going to direct to the consumer as much as they can, and so where 70% of those sales used to come, or 70% of Foot Locker sales used to come out of Nike, it's probably down to 60% or going to be 60% soon. And that's because Nike's doing so much over the internet directly to the consumer. But then you've got all these other players that have jumped in the game. I was just on Goat's website looking at their $900 pair of Givenchy sneakers, as well as all the Nike stuff that's on there that they're selling. And so you can you can buy them anywhere now on the internet. And of course, we're also seeing Nike do really well at places like Dick's now, and they used to be more into Foot Locker, and now they're supporting that stream too, as well as going direct to consumer. So it's just become much more competitive. The good news for the sneaker people is it's also a much bigger business than it was in the 90s because all anybody seems to be wearing now is some form of sneaker, even if it looks like it might be a dress shoe when you get to work in it. In direct-to-consumer, uh, how important is the social media influencer these days, especially with younger buyers? Because you do see uh, athletes uh, showing off their sneaker collection or uh, musicians or celebrities showing off their sneaker collection and probably uh, uh, inspiring some people uh, to go out and buy them. So is that a, a, is that a particular uh, area of the shoe business uh, that really moves a lot of merchandise? Well, you know, I don't think of Michael Jordan as an influencer, but if you wanted to buy a pair of great sneakers, they still call them Jordans, don't they? And we've certainly seen that over time. So celebrities have really mattered in the sneaker business, much more than what you and I think of as influencers, people who come up and influence what you're going to buy, where it's much more of a celebrity game where you sign the best basketball player, the best runner for your running shoes, and you get them to put their name on the shoes. And that's the way we've marketed them in the past. And that hasn't really changed so much. But is it important if somebody does wear your shoes and walks down the uh, red carpet in it? Yes, it's important. And that will influence especially the younger buyers. It's also very important now where that shoe shows up. And like I was mentioning, if your shoe is on GOAT and it's being sold in the aftermarket at a big price, that's really important too from the point of view of influence what people want to wear. But I would say that, that the real branding is still being done by celebrity athletes, and that's what's still driving that sneaker business. But now fashion really drives it too because – People are wearing it for a whole lot of things other than working out in or running, and that's for darn sure. Jan Rogers Niffen, CEO, J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide, based in New York. Thanks for joining us this afternoon.